This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Welcome to the Letter from the Bureau. This is a part of The Straits Times Asian Insider podcast channel, which we keep refreshing with new content. I'm your host, ST's foreign editor, Bhagishri Gareka. Now, the letter from the Bureau is meant to be a detour, a scenic detour from the raging news of the day. We like to talk about life as it goes on amid all the crises around us. I chat each month with one of ST's 30-odd correspondents in 15 cities across the Asia-Pacific, the United States, and Europe. And they share with you some of the more interesting things happening in their countries. In our fifth episode, we are speaking to the Straits Times Japan correspondent, Walter Sim, who's based in Tokyo. It's good to have you on the show, Walter. Hi, thanks for having me on. Okay, Walter, so I'm going to begin by reading a few lines from your column. Uh, You say, the country that gave the world umami flavoring, instant noodles, mechanical pencils, and mosquito coils is not the first place that comes to mind when one thinks of startups or inventions that wow. Now, I have to say that I still do retain an image of Japan as the nation of cool technology. Uh, We know, of course, that China and South Korea, for instance, have caught up and they have surpassed Japan on many counts. But you've been living in Japan now for the last five years. Tell me, why do you think Japan is no longer the innovation king, so to speak? Right. Thanks for the question, Balga. And and I have to say for a start that your image of Japan as a high-tech nation still stands. I mean, the likes of Panasonic, NEC, Fujitsu, Mitsubishi, Sharp, Daikin, and so on and so forth continue to manufacture very reliable products. And I don't think they are in danger of becoming obsolete in the world stage. But I, I, I do think that on the flip side of the coin, most of these products are perhaps invisible to the point of being taken for granted nowadays. Japan has the world's fastest supercomputer, according to latest rankings in June. NEC's biometric technology is also being used at immigration checkpoints around the world, including at Singapore's very own Changi Airport. But because of how common they are being used around the world, they are not innovations that wow and that was the point that I was trying to make uh, in my column and of course Japan has its fair share of Nobel Prize winners we have uh, Dr. Akira Yoshino who took the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 2019 for his work on lithium-ion batteries but with all this in mind as what Dr. Kenta Ikeuchi a research fellow at Japan's Rieti, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, told me for this story, a lot of recent innovations in Japan tend to be very understated as opposed to inventions that really shift the needle, like what you see in China or South Korea or around the world. And in this regard, I think Japan has, in a way, fallen behind the innovation curve, according to new metrics that look at things like uh, the number of startup unicorns. And there's also the fact of how Japan's Products are typically priced at a premium as compared to, say, China and South Korea, which, because of their position in having to play catch up to Japan, has in recent years or in recent decades even been aggressively and cleverly marketing their products to Japan's expense. And this would have affected Japan's standing in the mind of consumers, I think. You have a point, Walter. I mean, yes, you're right. We do take Japanese technology for granted. We take it that it works and it works well. 
But I can't help thinking, you know, that most of the tech items, for instance, I own just personal tech. You know, they are American design. They are China made for the most part. And, you know, I am a fan of Japanese cameras, but it has been a while since I last bought a Japanese camera. So you've begun talking about it, but tell us a little more fully what's gone wrong for Japan. Right, sure. Yeah, it's, it's kind of ironic. I, I do see your point. I, I mean, I live here in Japan, but my camera as well isn't Japanese made. And I do think there are numerous reasons for this, Bakia. So first, first and foremost, Japan's technology has long been regarded as reliable and trustworthy. And Japan is being globally seen as a world technological leader. But on the other side of that coin, uh, why should Japan gamble with this reputation of reliability with trustworthy products by building something that is disruptive and in doing so, this contains inherent risks as well. This is a country that does not cope well with failure, does not cope well with scandals. And I I think this poses an obstacle for the country. Another point is sentimentality leading to a resistance and change that has held the country back. Interestingly, when I first moved to Japan in 2016, I was really gobsmacked by how many organizations still expected, say, even RSVPs to be done by fax. And this is something that's gradually, <laughs> this is something that's gradually changing. But still, there's a lot of elder Japanese who think that, you know, what worked in the 1980s during the bubble era, when Japan was at that time threatening to leapfrog the US as the world's largest economy, a lot of them still think that, you know, what worked then continues to work today. And this has kind of reared its ugly head with uh, Japan's struggles in COVID-19, I think. So we see Japan being unable to coax companies into more widely adopting telework, more widely adopting, say, telemedicine, online education, and more recently, even its vaccination passports, vaccination certificates are paper-based and not digitalized. Wow, those are amazing insights, uh, Walter. Now, in your column, you also spoke about this Galapagos syndrome that's cost Japan. What exactly is it and what were you trying to say? So I think Galapagos syndrome is something that's used exclusively to refer to Japan with its massive domestic market that is large enough to sustain company profits. So Japan has 126 million consumers and its unique language by itself has been used by many companies to justify that, you know, it's unnecessary to build products or build uh, or market products for a wider global audience because, well, they are profitable anyway with the massive domestic market. So, well, this is not directly related to innovation, but I think one clear example of this is how K-pop has taken over the world and Korean Groups, boy bands or girl groups are huge in Japan as well, but we do not see Japanese groups really making as much of an effort at all to break into South Korea or into China. So likewise for companies, I think there's very little impetus for them to think global or go global. So many Japanese members of the public have a very rudimentary command of English. And I think this has kind of affected how they see the world really. And until its recent tourism drive, Japan was pretty much adrift from the rest of the world. Uh, Yet this is changing, of course, and this is being driven by the aging and declining population that's created a kind of a sense of crisis that with a shrinking consumer market that uh, Japanese companies have no choice really but to expand and to adopt a wider global outlook. Okay. Which are the areas, Walter, that Japan is still strong in? 
hardware definitely is something that Japan is really strong in. So Japanese cars remain a huge demand worldwide. I think that's something that's indisputable. Game consoles from, say, Sony Playstations to Nintendo Switches are still in huge demand all around the world. Japan is also strong in robotics and there are robots for all kinds of things in Japan, including wait staff taking orders to receptionists uh, and even medical care robots in elderly homes. Though uh, I have to say that this has not really permeated much of society yet. Look, moving forward, I, I think Japan is strong in research and development in, in, in terms of say, hard technology. So earlier on, we talked about how Japan has produced numerous Nobel Prize winners in science and physics and chemistry. And, and, and so I think this is something that Japan can really build on. It's also strong in its research in artificial intelligence and deep learning. I think it has a good chance in taking the lead, pioneering the world in such areas as flying cars or self-driving cars. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. And now, back to Walter Sim and our conversation about Japan's somewhat falling grades in innovation. Tell us some more, Walter. You've got us interested about these signature made-in-Japan things. Now, we see many of them present in our everyday life. Over here in Singapore, there is the QR code. And we scan it all the time to enter buildings, you know, because of COVID. And a favorite pastime for many of us here is Sudoku. Sure. And indeed, as you said, there are a lot of traces of Japanese inventions around everyday society if you know where to look. QR codes, as you raised, have grown in prominence, especially during this COVID era. And I'm sure many of our readers would have accessed this podcast via a QR code through our print newspaper pages as well. So this is something that was invented in Japan and has really changed the world. And QR codes were founded in 1994 by Masahiro Hara, an engineer of Denso Wave, a Japanese automotive parts company. And he was inspired when he was playing a lunchtime game of Go or Weiti. So the black and white pieces that was used in the ancient game of strategy gave him the idea that, you know, two-dimensional images can be used to store information instead of barcodes that can hold about 20 alphanumeric characters of data. QR codes can hold 200 times as much information and, and we can see it being used in everything these days from, say, payment methods to, as what you mentioned, Bakia, and in, in, in terms of contact tracing, check-ins in Singapore. Meanwhile, Sudoku was not invented in Japan per se, and and, and the, these number puzzles has been traced to France in the 1890s. But what Japan did well, and what Japan has been given credit for is in terms of its naming of these number puzzles, as well as popularizing them. So the late Maki Kaji, who has been dubbed the godfather of Sudoku, started publishing these puzzles in domestic magazines in the 1980s. And this would later be discovered by foreign publishers who came to Japan for holiday, picked up a copy of these magazines and found these puzzles interesting enough to republish them overseas. And I guess naming is everything, right? With a Japanese name like Sudoku, you know, people would draw the immediate connection that, hey, these puzzles are Japanese in Asia. And this gives added value to Japanese soft power as well. Beyond that, Japan has also been credited with popularizing and standardizing pictograms 
uh, I'm not sure how many of you have watched the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games opening ceremony, but there was this segment on pictograms that was a real hoot and really popular online that got social media buzzing. So these pictograms were born out of the 1964 games. I'm sure that pictograms must have existed in some form or other before the 1964 events, but Japan has been given credit for standardizing them and say toilet signs to even the icons used to represent games, given how it had to at that time think of ways to bridge the language communication barrier for millions of visitors around the world for what was the first Olympic Games to be held in Asia at that time. So besides that, there are other Japanese inventions in common everyday use. Uh, so you have karaoke boxes, cup noodles, mechanical pencils, and even the emoticons, the emojis that you now use in your text messages. These are very Japanese in Asia. And yet you suggest, Walter, that Japan's not really been able to cash in on most of its own inventions. So in the case of the QR code, for instance, it was China which really went and made full use of it. And that's led to China becoming the leader in online payments. Yep, that's right. And and I, I think because of that, there really has been a lot of lost opportunities and it's really unfortunate. I guess this could perhaps be because of the Galapagos syndrome and other issues that we discussed that kind of led to a tunnel vision and how Japan has approached its own inventions thus far. So you, you brought up QR codes and indeed QR codes were elevated to the mainstream only because smartphones came into wider use. But uh, not many people would probably know that it was Japan and not, say, America, China or South Korea that developed the world's first camera phone. So Kyoto-based electronics company Kyocera produced the first commercial camera phone in September 1999, known as the VP210, which had a front-facing camera. And Sharp followed suit in November 2000 with the JSH04, which had a back-facing camera. Some critics might note that, you know, Samsung did release the SCHV 200 in June 2000, but purists argue that this cannot really be regarded as a camera phone because images could only be transferred after they have been uploaded onto a computer before they could be sent, unlike Japan's models that could be sent wirelessly. We were talking about QR codes, right? And, and QR codes were used as a form of payment by Alipay as early as in 2011. But Japan did not see ways to capitalize on that. And in terms of the environment, Japan had the world's first megawatt solar thermal power plant in the 1980s, which was founded because of the uncertainties of the oil crisis back then. Uh, but Japan did not find ways to capitalize on this because it found it to be too energy inefficient and it abandoned this project entirely four years after it began. And well, I can't help but think that, you know, in a parallel world where Japan had seized these opportunities, it might instead be a global leader today in green technology or even in cashless payments. So, you know, you can't help but wonder what could have been, I guess. And I share that sentiment, uh, Walter. But in your story, you've also made a very interesting connection between innovation and soft power. So now here in Asia, we've always admired and adopted and well, even copied Japan's cute culture. Is that the kind of thing you mean? Yes, to a very large extent. I'm glad you posed this question. So there, there are a lot of, you know, kawaii or cute 
things that are associated with Japan. So from the likes of Pikachu to Hello Kitty and Super Mario. And, and experts I've spoken to said that this can be a very good marketing selling point for the oddball Japanese creativity that serves as a springboard for the so-called cool Japan initiative for cultural diplomacy. And I guess through this, it, it kind of helps Japanese society, you know, take themselves less seriously. And these fun innovations go a long way to build up Japan's soft power branding. So as we discussed earlier, there are karaoke and emojis that are easily connected to Japan. And if you have been to our neighborhood Daiso recently, you would probably be surprised at the number of knickknacks that you never thought you need, but when you pick them up, you know, you would think that, hey, these things make life so much easier. Why hasn't anyone else thought of these before? So these are the things that, you know, Japan is strong in besides, you know, Japanese food or its variety programs with memes that sometimes find their way online. And yes, these are areas in which Japan can leverage its innovation, its soft power, its creativity going forward, in my opinion. No, you're so right. I mean, Daiso, honestly, it, it is a wonder every time, the kind of things they come up with. And my own favorite, actually, this Made in Japan thing, it's not a thing, it's a person. It's Marie Kondo, you know, the goddess of Get Tidy, the KonMari movement. And I'm pretty sure there are fans among our listeners too. So, Walter, final word. What are the ways that Japan now can get back in this innovation game? What can they do better? Right. I, I guess because of its Galapagos Island Syndrome, you know, a lot of Japan innovations that do not make it big in Japan initially would have to make it big overseas first before they gain attention domestically. So to take your example of Marie Kondo, she was relatively unknown in Japan until she became a global hit after her family relocated to the United States in 2014 and after she made headlines in Japan a year later when she was first named onto Time Magazine's Most Influential People of the World. So in, in, in light of this, I, I think Japan really has to do away with existing bureaucratic structures and find ways to, you know, really promote new and innovative ideas, uh, be it through the use of government grants or through, or through other means like social media. Uh, we saw how Pico Taro popularized PPAP, Pen, Pineapple, Apple Pen in 2016 as well. And that, that is something that, you know, would have been unthinkable with traditional models of how Japan approaches uh, entertainment or innovation. With all that said, however, I, I think Japan might well be on the way there. So the explosive growth of tourists in recent years has drastically, dramatically increased interest in domestically amongst Japanese and their interest to foreign cultures. And before the COVID pandemic hit, there has been actually growing numbers of Japanese travelers venturing abroad in spite of, you know, their rudimentary command of language uh, of, of Japanese. Uh, with COVID-19, we see many Japanese taking up interest in online education of unconventional uh, languages, some on the brink of extension around the world as well. So I think there's this sense of Japan opening up to the possibilities worldwide. And with this, it gives birth to, say, creativity and innovation as well. And meanwhile, on the Japan Inc., the company front, we see a lot of companies starting to shun lifelong employment as well. And the jobs market today is a lot more dynamic where innovative ideas and talents are being wooed. And and so I, I think it really might not be too soon before long that a headline-grabbing Japanese animation comes onto the market. Well, I hope so, Walter, and we'll have you back here to talk about it. 
And so that's a wrap for our letter from the Bureau. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to read Walter's column, we have a link in our podcast description box. You will also find a link to the other stories in our Letter from the Bureau series. And don't forget to subscribe to the revamped Asian Insider podcast channel on your favorite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. The Asian Insider podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.